1: Hello and welcome to Midpoint. Today we have one of our very special episodes where we deep dive into an area that you've indicated you want more information and learning on. So my expert to help us along today is Nadine Baggett. Nadine is an award-winning beauty journalist with about 30 years experience across a range of newspapers, magazines and TV shows. And I asked you what you wanted to know. You have been brilliant in sending in your questions and areas of concern. So let's go mine Nadine's wealth of information. Nadine, thank you so much for joining us on The Midpoint. In your introduction, I have described your incredible experience uh, across the beauty industry for, for decades. And that does kind of point to somebody who's in The Midpoint, in the middle of life. I don't know if you reveal your age.
2: Actually, I can I just say I feel like a bit of a cheat here. I actually am beyond my midpoint. I turned 60 last summer. Congratulations. That's a fantastic landmark, <laughs> Thank you.
1: but don't worry, you're not the first over 60 to to be on the midpoint. But you have I think in that kind of specialist knowledge of that period of life that women start to, and men actually, because a lot of the questions that have come in have come from men, start to kind of notice things and uh, there are changes that happen that there are things out there that can help people sometimes just go, oh, well, that's it. It's aging. Other people really want to intervene at different levels. So I thought you'd be a perfect person to come on and talk about that period of life in terms of beauty, because that's, a lot's changed, I imagine, in the time that you started writing and talking about beauty.
2: I've been writing about health and beauty for over 33 years now and I've been a journalist since I left university and so much has changed. There's been a real revolution and I think for the first time there are things we can do that weren't available 15 years ago, but I actually think the most important thing to have happened is there's been a real democratisation in beauty. So on the high street now, beauty is better than ever and I'm a real champion of that. I don't want people to go out and spend a fortune on things they can't afford.
1: Yeah. And a lot of the questions that have come in pertain to that. So shall we get cracking? Because I put it out there. I said, Nadine's coming on. And by the way, the reaction was just lovely. And so many people had such wonderful things to say about you. They follow you already or they've seen you on TV and they've read your articles in various magazines. So um, this is one that cropped up a few times in different guises. And actually, people have asked me this because I've in the past taken these collagen tablets worth taking. That's from Mia Dukes.
2: Not so much the tablets or the gummies because they're not strong enough. And if you'd have asked me this probably a year ago, I'd have said save your money because the jury was definitely out. And I'm firmly on the side of it has to be clinically proven for me to recommend that you spend money on it because it's actually quite a lot of money. Mm. And then what I did was I did an item for this morning about it. So I did a deep dive into it. And then in the last year, the researchers started to come in. You need 20 grams of collagen a day to make a difference and the reason that that's quite a high dose which you can't get from a tablet tablet and you can't get from a gummy is because your whatever you take internally will end up in your skin last so it starts in your gut your body uses collagen all over the place all the muscle fibers everything all the connective tissues so what happens is it starts in the gut and then there's a sort of pecking order of where it goes in the body and obviously to your body your skin is pretty unimportant it might Mm -hmm. be its largest organ Mm. but it doesn't really care about it that much it cares Mm. about your heart and your lungs and your bones and your kidneys and your liver so it basically gets eked out and then the very last place it goes to will be your skin and hair so you need 20 grams a day that is the equivalent of two big scoops of collagen powder in some sort of form and we actually did a study and we looked at all the prices and they're roughly the same price but we worked out the vital proteins was the cheapest I've never been paid vital proteins, trust me. I've got no allegiance to any brand. And absolutely, because it's also bovine collagen, I don't take red meat, so I don't even take collagen. So yes, it works. My advice would be find the cheapest form of bovine collagen out there and you need 20 grams a day. Okay.
1: And um, just for people who are listening who don't know, what that would do, what the collagen would do and what the benefits are.
2: So collagen is the connective tissue in your body and it's really important in your skin and as you go through perimenopause and menopause, your body starts to produce less and less and less of it. However, the collagen that you drink does not replace that collagen. It gives your body the nutrients it needs to make more collagen. There are easier ways to boost collagen production, though, I have to say, than taking a pretty disgusting sort of beef tasting drink and actually... To be honest, if you've got a fairly healthy diet with lean meat in it, you're probably getting enough protein and collagen naturally. So if you're naturally having, you know, lean steak twice a week or great fish twice a week, you're probably getting enough anyway. I'm generally not a fan of what's called blind supplementation. And that is thinking, right, I've got bad hair, I've got bad skin, I'll take a hair or skin supplement because you actually don't know what's going on internally in your body. Mm -hmm. So you don't know what nutrients you're missing.
1: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about elasticity. Denise Connell, 12, asks, how do I maintain skin elasticity? Now, this it's quite a general term, isn't it? Elasticity. Um, but I think what we all notice as we get older, and it doesn't necessarily have to happen on the face, but even if you work out, there are areas of your body around your elbows or your knees or, you know, even the tops of your thighs where you start to notice the skin just doesn't look as young and juicy as it used to. Is that inevitable? Is there anything you can do?
2: It is inevitable. And if you'd have asked me this 20 years ago, I'd have come up with some fancy cream that you know some beauty company was trying to sell to you. But having been through the menopause myself, and I joked with my friends that one day you're sort of doing a plank or you're on a Pilates reformer and you look down and, and there's this sort of weird creepiness on the inside of your <laughs> arm. And you think, where the hell did that come from? It genuinely doesn't matter what form of exercise you do or how much exercise you do. The elasticity in your skin, which is actually different to the collagen, so the collagen gives your skin bounce. The elasticity in your skin comes from something called another fibre called elastin, and there's nothing you can do to boost the elastin in your skin, very, very sadly. I mean, short of going under the knife or having treatments or some crazy intervention like that, all you can really do is use an SPF, and I wish I'd told myself when I was younger to wear (laughs) SPF the whole time. The worst thing you can do for your skin in terms of elasticity, so that crepiness that happens on knees and backs of arms inner arms inner thighs and stuff like that is sit in the sun
1: so if it's on the face um and you've had lots on the face that's where you can get crepiness which is irreversible on the face once it starts to appear
2: unless you're prepared to have a tweakment and the best tweakment actually for that crepey skin would be something called radiofrequency microneedling so that's the um the thing that uh, just recently so judy murray had it oh, done Oh, i
1: read about that yeah
2: do you remember? And there was a mm. huge fuss. And now Shirley Ballas has just had mm-hmm. it done. That wonderful uh, jawline. And they had it done for their jawlines,
1: didn't they? Did they? Do- yes.
2: Mm. So basically, you do this little bit under here, and then you do this little bit around the eyes. And it's not pleasant. And little tiny needles are delivered into the top layer of the skin, where they deliver an energy, and that that's supposed to shrink the skin back. And it's specifically for skin texture, not so much skin lifting, but for skin texture. So for Queen, does it last? It will last probably for about a year, two years. Kim Kardashian's had it because obviously she's Kim Kardashian has had it all over her body oh. so postpartum she had it on her tummy around her belly button how long would that and, take? oh forever But that's a lot that's <laughs> just a lot of treatment isn't it? it because I was about okay. to say if if you had an area
1: on your body say your arms or your knees that were really bothering you it would work on those bits would it?
2: it would work providing it's just a skin texture issue so it's not going to get rid of cellulite it's not going to get rid of excess weight but yes radio frequency microneedling there are a couple of machines out there that are really fashionable yes it can work to tighten that what i mean by crepey wrinkly skin
1: is there a brand for that or or is it just radio should people just inquire about radio frequency
2: i would inquire about radio frequency micro needling there are a couple of brands out there there's a brand out there called potenza which is is around and about but the, the truth is when you book it you're not actually going to know what machine you're going to get So it's about the skill of the protection. And can I just say word of warning here, it can add up to be thousands of pounds. Right.
1: This is not a cheap intervention. It's a lot of money. And um, does it have any contra indicators?
2: Uh, No, not really, because it only goes in the surface layers of the skin. Each little head sort of instantly within a few seconds sort of does about, between 20 and 40 micro needles, it goes in and then you get this buzz of energy in the skin. It's not pleasant, I have to say. I have tested it, particularly good for crepiness around the eyes and crepiness under here.
1: OK, and so to answer Denise's question, I guess maintaining skin elasticity is, is almost impossible if you you can't do anything apart from stay out of the sun.
2: Yeah, so I would say stay out of the sun. You can look at tweakments. The other interesting area of of research is phytoestrogens in skincare. So phytoestrogens are plant-based estrogens, and actually some research coming out of America is showing that phytoestrogens might work. So basically what you're doing to postmenopausal skin is giving it back a form of plant estrogen to make it mimic estrogen within the skin. Because this is really only something that happens either with very large weight gain or weight loss, so say through pregnancy or through weight loss, say after gastric sleeve surgery, or it happens through menopause because basically our bodies are producing less estrogen. It happens in guys too, but women tend to go through a period of ageing that's a little bit like a roller coaster which is hormonally driven men is much more of a slow steady slide down but you will notice that men get wrinkly crepey skin as well
1: and that brings us on to this question from Planet Ferguson who says what should I do for really dry menopausal skin now just uh, cards on the table one of the perimenopausal symptoms that I decided to kind of go and uh, investigate HRT because of was actually dry skin that was one of the things that I, I noticed like my, I could no amount of I like I like an E45 body lotion. No amount of E45 was was getting my legs feeling the same. And it was all, all over. It wasn't just the face. It was kind of an all over feeling. So for, for me, actually taking bioidentical hormones, re, that was one of the things I really noticed that my skin was not as dry.
2: We first met chatting about this very subject. You and I are both incredibly pro-HRT. And for me, I've taken HRT since I was about 47. So it's made a massive difference to me. And people say to me, does the HRT prevent your skin from becoming drier and aging and losing elasticity and bounce and stuff like that? And it's hard for me to say personally, because obviously I haven't ever not taken it. I would say yes, though, in my personal experience. And then I would say for somebody who doesn't want to go the HRT mm-hmm. route, or, or even is taking HRT, mm-hmm. yet yeah, or can't, or even is taking HRT and their skin is still dry. There are two key active ingredients you want to look out for, and they needn't cost a fortune. You need to not put on actually a typical E45 occlusive cream because that doesn't actually get into the skin. You need to look for lactic acid. So you need to look for a lactic acid body lotion, something like ameliorate. Do an amazing body lotion and it exfoliates away the dead skin cells so that the moisturizer can go in. And then look for ceramides. And ceramides are the glue that holds skin cells together. I'm sort of doing this fist bumping movement here that shows you. Can you you. get ceramides
1: on the high street?
2: Yes, absolutely everywhere. There's a brand called Curel for the face that is Japan's number one ceramide range, super cheap. And then the American equivalent is CeraVe. You go into Boots Superdrug, you will probably spend about 15 pounds. They're absolutely brilliant. So exfoliate with a lactic acid, then stick loads of ceramides on, you'll be fine. Because what happened is as you get older and your oestrogen goes down, you produce less ceramides. So the so basically, it's a little bit like a brick wall that sort of has lost its filling in between and then the water can escape out.
1: OK, and well, that answers in a way as well. Uh, Lauren Ryan, she says, I've had my first baby at 42. My skin is like a crisp. Help. Um, she wants new serums or creams. Uh, well, she says she's buying them every week, but nothing's working. So does the advice you've just given then apply to her?
2: Absolutely. It's completely ageless. It's the same advice I would give to somebody who has, because you can get children with dry skin conditions like eczema, stuff like that as well. So basically those brands that have a low level, really gentle level of exfoliating lactic acid, which is found naturally in the skin and lots of ceramides, will work across any age group. It doesn't matter if you're a man or you're a woman, if you're skiing, if your skin's dry, if you're postnatal, it doesn't make any difference at all. You treat it with the same active ingredients. Skin is skin is skin, really. mm
1: mm-hmm. Sincerely, Sarah has asked also about elasticity on the lower half of the face, the jowls, and the jaw. Obviously, there is there is muscle in the face, and there's a there's a muscle uh, kind of layer muscle on the on the skeleton of the face, on the bones. So, uh, massage, facial massage, which I'm a massive fan of, you can actually do that yourself as well, can't you? To to help yourself maintain some kind of structural strength to the face. Is there anything else that you would suggest? There's a
2: brand new treatment and hands up, I have not tried it, called M-Face. I'm sure people, your listeners might have heard of something called M-Sculpt. And M-Sculpt is this incredible machine that essentially sends micro currents into the skin and then it goes into the muscle and clenches the muscle. Well, for the first time, they've developed it for the face and these pads essentially go on the face and you get these strange contractions. The research coming out of America is very, very, very impressive because what happens is as you get older, you actually lose not only bone density in your face, but you do lose muscle action within the face. So if you can plump up the muscle and make it slightly larger, then obviously the face will become slightly fuller. But the truth is when it goes under here, so I'm looking at myself now, lifting that classic thing that we all do once we get over 50, we look in the mirror and do that. Essentially, that's a combination of loss of bone mass, loss of muscle mass and loss of fat because the fat pads do drop as you get older, sadly.
1: Right, and no amount of extra kind of um, omega-3s and good fats is going to help you with that then?
2: I... I cannot tell you enough how important diet is in terms of your skin barrier function. So we were talking about dry skin earlier on. I actually take an omega fish oil supplement every single day for dry hair and dry skin. It makes a huge difference. But sadly, no, that's literally just going to work on the surface layers here. Once your skin starts to sag, it is literally every layer of your face and skull, sadly. It is. Some things are just inevitable, Gabby. Sorry. (laughs) Depressing but
1: true. Yeah, you're moving me more and more towards a full-blown facelift here. Um, (laughs) I'm only joking. I'm only joking. Um, Well, actually, uh, sincerely, Sarah sent another message. Um, She's obviously having she obviously having a bit of a day. (laughs) She sent another one saying (laughs) she's sharing best (laughs) best age to start Botox and who to trust. Um, Now, this won't be for everybody, and you know, a lot of people don't like the effects of what Botox does because you know it's it's kind of a, a freezing the face and I'm not sure people who've had Botox at a very young age for a long time uh, whether or not it actually makes you look any younger or you just makes you look you know like your face doesn't move or not but anyway that's you know it's, it's a personal thing isn't it to kind it's the of the
2: latter Gabby it's the latter
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so do you think there is an age that's because I, I it really kind of breaks my heart when I see young girls I know in their 20s doing Botox Um I
2: agree completely
1: so what I mean what, what age if you're going to Jimmy Carr was on this podcast, for example, saying that you know he has regular treatments and and he you know is all for um his regular Botox. Right, he's in his fifties now. Should should people wait? Is it the earlier the better?
2: What's your What's your thoughts? I am an absolute. Um, anti 100% anti what's known as preventative Botox I think that's absolutely ridiculous I just think they're selling Botox to people that don't need it Um, in fact nobody needs Botox let's be honest I have worked and lived through an era pre and post tweakments as they're called and I agree with you completely. I don't think that Botox in younger people makes them look younger. It simply makes them look like they've had work done, and you can tell that face that absolutely doesn't move. If you, you just have to go back onto an old school TV program, like watch Charlie's Angels or The Sweeney, and watch people's faces move, we pre Botox, you know, pre Botox, pre fillers. So uh, it's different. It's a totally different aesthetic. There is no right age. I would say that some people can get right into their fifties and sixties and not have expression lines. Botox doesn't have to freeze your face. For example, I do have Botox, and you can see from this now, if I look up and show you, move my forehead. I have full movement because I have a tiny amount in, and I have a tiny amount in maybe twice a year, so it can be done softly and subtly. Um, And I don't like the completely frozen face, especially not in an older face like mine. I would say it's when you feel the time is right, if you've made the decision and it's right for you. The most common place to have it is in here, those two lines that makes them look cross and angry. And some people who are short-sighted and who who do a lot of close-up work get those very strong lines here. And that's the easiest thing to fix with a tiny amount of Botox that no no face cream will do. I actually did it because I had very strong across lines, so sort of the horizontal lines here that wouldn't go. But again, I like it very subtle, very understated. And I would say my only advice is you have to go to somebody who is medically trained. So it has to be a doctor, a dentist, a nurse, somebody who knows what they're doing if they, if you get any side so effects. So what are
1: the current rules and regulations on who can actually administer Botox. Yes,
2: so so Botox is, is a prescription drug, so it has to be under a medical licence, so you have to be doctor, nurse, dentist, pharmacist so you have to have a medical licence to do it. Fillers however, which are fundamentally different, they're injected into the face to change the shape of the face rather than to stop movement within the muscles of the face uh, they are not licensed currently within the UK and anybody can buy them online and inject them and that includes beauty therapists, hairdressers yeah. It's, and yeah, that it's, seems even more wild, risky. It's so So risky. And that's where you have the problems. It is the Wild West out there. It's like Yellowstone of aesthetics. It's absolute madness. And the beauty industry and the aesthetics industry have been campaigning the government and lobbying the government for years to get it changed. The government obviously has very important things to do, but somebody needs to Mm. clamp down on this urgently. Because
1: when it goes wrong and, you know, fillers that are administered badly, it's not easy to remove, is it, what they're doing to your face?
2: I, th- the thing is, fillers are reversible. If you if you have a hyaluronic acid filler, they can use an enzyme that will break it down. But the truth is that it's not so much that you don't like the outcome of it. What happens if it's injected in the wrong place and you get a side effect? So maybe you get an anaphylactic shock or you can press on a blood vessel or you can get an overreaction to Botox if it's put in the wrong place. If that person isn't medically trained to either correct that or to administer even CPR, if you have an allergic reaction to something, then you really shouldn't be going to see this somebody. And, and it's very interesting because actually all of the aesthetics industry, all of the doctors, all of the nurses out there, all of the dentists out there are campaigning too. It's really only the slightly dodgy sort of under-the-counter beauty therapists and hairstylists and clinics that, uh, that don't want that because it's a license to print money. It's very scary and it's very young people who are targeted because they're looking for that bargain three for two, buy one, get one free and you really are taking your life into your hands. So
1: when it comes to things like um, Botox and fillers if it seems too good to be true in terms of the price it probably is and stay away.
2: It probably is yeah and and for Botox and, and fillers the really reputable companies like Allegan for example uh, they will have a clinic finder on their website and so So you'll go and you'll look at your clinic finder, you put in your postcode and it'll show you your nearest qualified, properly trained medical expert who can actually administer these things. The companies that I'm speaking about, the the dodgy clinics and the beauty therapists and the hairdressers that are selling this stuff and administering this stuff, they're buying it illegally on the Internet.
1: Okay. this is from Colin, Colin Taylor, 745. What do you recommend for closing pores on men? And is that different to women if they've got...
2: No, it's the same. Skin is skin is skin. Do you know, skin is is like fragrance, really. It shouldn't be gendered because the only thing that men do that women don't do is shave. And let's be honest here, once you get older, I mean... I could easily (laughs) have a little bit of laser hair removal on my face as I've gotten older. But the truth is that skin is skin is skin. And some men have dry skin and some men have oily skin and the same with women as well. So skin isn't gendered at all. There are two things I would recommend. If you've got large pores, there is a vitamin B3 called niacinamide, which works brilliantly absolutely brilliantly at regulating the sebum in the skin and if your skin produces is that something you take or apply well you can take it as a supplement but no it's a serum you can buy it over the counter and from a really cheap company like sorry shouldn't use the word cheap a really reasonably priced company like the inky list or the ordinary they both have niacinamide serums it's vitamin b3 it's water soluble it works brilliantly And if they're blocked, so if you've got blackheads, so if your pores are so bad that you've got blackheads and little block pores, you need something called salicylic acid, which is widely available again. Go into your local boots, grab one of those lovely women that are all hassled on a Saturday and working super hard and say, Nadine says I've got to buy a salicylic acid or a niacinamide. They will help you. Those active ingredients are widely available now. And actually, they're probably going to cost you less than £10.
1: And buying a more expensive version won't do any anything. That different, it really right? won't. No, no.
2: Okay. there are some bog standard belt and braces skincare actives and ingredients and products that you really do not need to spend a load of money on. You know, I'm going to say to you, time and time again, save your money on cleansers, they needn't cost a lot of money. Save your money on your moisturisers, they needn't cost a lot of money. Your SPFs needn't cost a lot of money. There are certain things I would recommend you do spend money on, but not the belt and braces of skincare.
1: A lot of people coming in with questions about dry skin, Um, but this one is quite (laughs) specific. Uh, No matter how much moisturiser, I rub on my bald head. I still get flaking, help, this is Monkey So Funky. Is the, is the skin on a on a bald, I assume, man's head? Is that is that any different to what you've been giving advice no, about dry it's skin? not.
2: And the problem with Monkey So Funky is he's not exfoliating his scalp. So he's putting on heavy moisturisers. It's counterintuitive
1: which to, back the to dead... people, isn't it? They think, well, why yeah, would I... Yeah,
2: absolutely. It's the same I was saying to the other lady when she said she's got dry skin and nothing is working for her. All you have to do is get rid of the dead skin cells first. So I would recommend for him... Uh, A lactic acid-based body lotion like ameliorate, you can put it on your scalp virtually every single day. And then I would have to say to him, and he's not going to want to believe this because British men are so anti this. He needs to use an SPF as well. I'm sorry, but he does. Trying to get English men to use SPFs is virtually impossible.
1: (laughs) Which countries are better at using SPFs then?
2: I think Australians are much better. South Africans are much better because they have really strong sun and the rates of skin cancer they've seen, they know. And if you're a guy and you're out and about, you're working out and about, you're, you're playing sports outside and you just don't wear your SPF, then you, yeah... And working you at you know so working careful. outdoors
1: whether you're in gardening, landscaping, building sites, all those things you know all year round really you should be putting an SPF on, shouldn't you? And as we know, young men these days and you see them out and about, they're paying a lot more attention to grooming, aren't they? In terms of eyebrows, even Botox and you know nipping up and getting their hairs uh, hair on their head plugged.
2: The as one well. thing I would say sorry about using an SPF if you absolutely cannot bear to use a standalone SPF. Just use a moisturiser with an SPF or more importantly, use an SPF in place of your moisturiser because it has all the moisturising ingredients you need. What do you do? I actually I hate layering on loads of products I hate it so every single morning I get up I cleanse my skin I put a vitamin c serum on one of the things I would recommend spending some money on and then I put an spf on in place of a moisturizer in the day and then at night I cleanse my skin again with a cream cleanser to get rid of my makeup uh, with a cloth and then I use a retinoid so a vitamin a at night and pretty much you'll get 99.9% of dermatologists say they do the same thing. That's where I learned how to look after my skin from clinical dermatologists. Not from beauty brands, not from beauty therapists, not from makeup artists. Like go to the people who are at the cutting edge, you know, Mm -hmm. every single day. So uh,
1: Siobhan Saba says, what are Nadine's top five affordable products for women in midlife? So these are not things that are going to break the bank here, Nadine.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there are certain brands that I would go to time and time again. You're going to go into Boots, you're going to go into supermarkets, you're going to go into Superdrug and you can find what you need. So I would recommend the curel that's the japanese number one ceramide range i would recommend their melting gel cleanser it's beautiful can be combined with a face flan or a microfiber cloth will get rid of every scrap of makeup you can put it in the shower it's just absolutely brilliant i would also recommend cerave hydrating gel cleanser that's the really big green one buy it in a super-sized pot put it in the family shower husbands can use it teenagers can use it children can use it you can use it for every piece of skin, literally from hairline to toes, you know, it's unfragranced, it's super gentle. You can get a super one for about £15. It would last your whole family about three months. It's where, amazing. where do you,
1: did you say you get them from? Boots. Boots. boots.
2: Yeah, mm. Boots. Boots, is, boots and Superdrug are the biggest stockists. And interestingly enough, you can use it all over your body because skin is skin is skin. So you don't need a heavily fragranced shower gel as well. So it will replace that. For a moisturiser, I would probably go Curel Extra Rich. They have a little tub that's absolutely brilliant. It's that pseudo-serum and I would rage from Japan. Again, really reasonably priced. For vitamin C, I would probably say the most reasonable vitamin C actually is a company called Timeless. And it's an American company. Didn't used to be available here. Now available on Amazon.co.uk. That would be the most reasonable high-end clinical alloscopic acid to use every single day. And the reason you use a vitamin C every single day is because it protects your skin from sunlight and pollution, and it reduces pigmentation. So as you get older, you tend to get a little bit more age spots or a little bit of melasma, so it's amazing. That's really reasonably priced. And then finally, the most reasonable priced vitamin A that's effective and affordable on the market is actually a retinaldehyde that was launched last year from a company called Geek & Gorgeous, which is available online. Every single one of those products is under £20. Wow. Some are under £10, yeah. You needn't spend a fortune. So those five products
1: are about skin... And most people, you know, have sent in questions about skin. It's funny, people don't see beauty as, you know, hair products. They kind of think of it all as being kind of face and body. But as a beauty writer and expert, you also test hair products. And I imagine you haven't got away in midlife with, you know, kind of going through with luscious locks the whole way through. So what did
2: you discover about your own hair in midlife? So I discovered this time last year that I had female pattern hair loss. And it was a real shock because I went to the trichologist to hold the hand of my, one of my closest friends who had something called telogen effluvium, which was actually caused by her morena coil. And so basically her hair was growing and then falling out at a massive range. She was very panicky about it. She was spending a fortune online as we all do if we have a real problem that we're embarrassed about, or we don't know who to speak to about it, and you can't go to your GP about it. She was just spending a fortune on all these crazy things. I said, come with me to the trichologist. And then halfway through her consultation, the trichologist just turned to me and said, have you thought about the front of your hair? And I just, it had happened so slowly, Gabby. I started going through the menopause when I was 48, 47, 48. So it was sort of, 12, 13 years later, and it happened so slowly that this sort of pathetic fringe just sort of wouldn't grow and was really thin and not very nice. Well, I
1: have this, and I thought it was just because I'm blow-drying it all the time. So what have I well, got? Well, it, it's, it's
2: <laughs> partly that. Well, you, I think you have really thick hair, but it's partly that. So it's partly that, that we most of us just concentrate on that front section of hair. So, And I, I too, colour my hair, and so I colour my hair and I blow-dry my hair and all those things. But actually, when she held my hair back, if you think about the way that men lose their hair traditionally, it's it's from those bits here. Mm-hmm.
0: Look the widow's at those peak, little bits there, it, you see, they?
2: and look how far mm. they go back, and then right. you've got these sort of funny little baby hairs. Yeah. I mean, what's that? What's that, Gabby? Look <laughs> at that! I haven't had a baby. What's that? And that is essentially my follicles, basically going. Yeah, I think I'm going to give up. <laughs> So essentially, it was very interesting. So I was I was diagnosed with having female pattern hair loss. Unbelievably common. 60% of women that go through the menopause suffer from it. 40% of women in total suffer from hair loss and hair thinning at some point. It tends to have a hormonal undertow to it. And I am on HRT, but I take a very low level of HRT. But it just made me think, one, how traumatic it is for women when they lose their hair. And I think it is Traumatic for men, for a lot of men, but for women there's something about your identity as a woman and your femininity that is so caught up in your hair. So that I thought. And then also I started thinking about what I could do to look after my hair and to do the minimum to it. So, And by that, I don't mean the minimum in terms of washing it because I have to wash it regularly. But I, I started thinking, right, okay, no more peroxide for me. So I have a low level tint on my hair rather than peroxide. I try not to blow dry it and straighten it too much, even though I admit I'm addicted to doing that. But yes, it was really shocking to me. And for me, there are Things you should invest in in your hair, if your hair is problematic, I would recommend if you have a sympathetic GP, please, if you can find a sympathetic GP, you can go and have blood tests. And those blood tests will be a run on your thyroid, which is the most common problem. In younger women, if they have hair loss issues or hair thinning issues, they'll check something called your ferritin level, which is your stored iron in level, because a lot of women think they eat very healthily, but they tend not to eat enough red meat and green vegetables, which are the the main sources of iron in your diet. And then they'll also test your estrogen and progesterone and see where you are on that hormonal roller coaster that is sort of, you know, uh, puberty, postpartum, and then perimenopause and menopause. And so there are things you can do, and I now take quite a few supplements. So I take amino acids, building blocks of protein for my hair. I take a B12 because I wasn't getting enough B12, and an iron regularly, and that's made a difference. But yes, it's made a a massive difference, but it's still not kicking those little sad squeezy little follicles which are sort of going help me help me it's not really kicking them back into life now the next step for me would be a prescription drug called minoxidil which i'm not that keen on taking
1: Because there's also a product, and uh, we were discussing this with Gary Lineker and Michael Douglas, the hairdresser, the other day. Uh, it's like a mousse that they rub into their monoxidal. Yeah. Oh, is that's monoxidal? Reg- right. It's
2: called Regain, Rogaine. But yeah. Regain you so can the, get the, over
1: the counter, can't
2: you? Yeah, mm-hmm. you can. You, and it's very interesting, actually. So it used to be a prescription product. You can buy it over the counter, but you have to buy it from the pharmacist. So it's a pharmacy-only product. It's absolutely clinically proven to work in men, without a doubt, without a doubt. With women, it's more complicated, and the women's minoxidil Rogaine Regain is twice the price of the men's. Don't fall for it. Buy the men's one if you decide that's the way you want to go. And what it does is it's clinically proven to to boost the hair growth, absolutely, within the follicle. Uh, but you have to take it for the rest of your life, and that's a big commitment, a big commitment. I think I might try PRP. So that's platelet-rich plasma. That's the, the vampire facial that you see all the celebrities have. So basically you you donate some... Your own blood. Yeah, and then it gets injected back into your hair follicles. If I do, you know me, I'll create a video and share it with everybody. There's no shame, but, you know... We'll see if it works. Again, it's a commitment. We'll see. And what about, um, obviously, for men nowadays, which I'm
1: so pleased that men are so open about having hair transplants now. And it's so kind of accepted that that's something, you know, Kenny just bumped into a relative of his in an airport recently and he uh, had had his hair done. And he, he said to Kenny, I was looking in the mirror. It's quite a young man. So I was looking in the mirror and I was thinking, you know, every day I was getting down about this. And I thought, what am I doing? Just go and do it. He's only in his thirties. And I thought, wow, that, that just wouldn't have been an open conversation 20 years ago. Is there it's something that women can do similarly if if the front of the hair is causing them problems is there any reason why they wouldn't be able to do that
2: no absolutely they can do exactly the same thing so the hair that grows at the back of the head is less affected by those hormones and again with women as they get older what happens is you produce less estrogen so the effects of your androgen which are the hormones that are traditionally male hormones but women have them as well have an effect on those follicles and they start to die off if you're prepared to do it, you can absolutely have those punch biopsy uh, transplants put from here to here. I know a couple of really big celebrities that have got um, traction alopecia. That's where you have your hair tied too tightly and it pulls it out through the front who have had that done. Yeah, absolutely. That's, That's a completely valid intervention. And it's just as much of a valid intervention for women as it is for men. And does the hair grow then? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because essentially they don't just take the hair, they take the follicle and the skin around it and then they punch it back in. It's a big procedure. You have to get the member of your family over and discuss it over drinks because one night, because it is, it's a tough procedure. I mean you've got to really kind of go for it. You're awake through it, they numb the area, they take each individual hair follicle out, they separate them out and then they plug them back in. Jimmy Carr has spoken openly yeah, about he spoke it. On and the his mid-point results, about it, yeah. His results are amazing. It's it's really impressive. I mean, the more men that have been open and honest about it and and have said, and I think there's also a slight thing, isn't there? There's a joke with men that they get it because they've got too much testosterone. So there's a slight sort of medal of honor with it as well. But it, it's absolutely, it's, a, it's hugely expensive, but it's proven to work. And that technology has come on, leaps and bounds in the last 10 years.
1: And there is this thing that men nip off to Turkey to get it done. Jimmy uh, was quite funny about that, as you can imagine. And and actually, he said he ended up not going to the shiny, very expensive looking place on Harley Street he first looked at. He ended up going to a guy in Portsmouth um, who he said, you know, it wasn't as shiny and marble, he said, but the guy, he really liked the guy. And he went for the person that he really trusted. Are we now in this country able to offer, you know, better value than people having to go off to Turkey? And is there anything wrong with going to Turkey?
2: The truth is that people go abroad for cosmetic surgery because it's cheap. Yes,
1: by the way, not just Turkey, obviously, but that seems no, to No, not place. just Turkey.
2: They go everywhere. I mean, I mean, if I was going to, we were joking earlier on about facelifts. Listen, if I decide I'm going to have a facelift, I'm going to LA. Those guys are the best in the world. It's probably going to cost about four times as much as getting it in London, but it's your face, you know, joking aside. Uh, people go abroad because there's so much pressure to look Love Island-like especially with young people, they can't afford it. You know, that 20 years ago, cosmetic surgery was the, the the privileged and the rich people's pastime. It wasn't expected of a young, normal person on the street. Um, the problem is not that it's you won't find a great practitioner abroad. It's that if anything goes wrong, you're then back home and the UK NHS is already stretched thinly enough. If something goes wrong, they are not going to know what you've had done. And also, they're not going to be trained in the same methods and techniques as we're trained at in London. So my advice would be, don't go abroad for cosmetic surgery, but I totally understand why young people are driven to it.
1: You hit on an an interesting philosophical point there about the kind of Love Island phenomena and people, previously it was the preserve of the rich and famous to have a facelift and it's become much more democratised you know you could say but also it's become much more kind of homogenous the way the way therefore people kind of look because of the having all having the same treatments and they don't care about talking about it whereas before it would be something that people didn't admit to it's almost a badge of honour to say I've had this done and this is what I'm doing and clearly people have had work done and much younger and younger as somebody who's seen trends come and go in the beauty industry uh, I I personally find it quite troubling because I worry about kind of you know What's going and you have on children, inside. so you get it. Yeah.
2: You, you have children who are that age that I bet some of their friends are having work done. And I also think we grew up in an era, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, well over 10 years older than you, but we grew up in an era when, for me, I wanted to grow up looking like, like Charlie's Angels or Debbie Harry or somebody like that. And again, they were pretty much natural because this is pre-cosmetic surgery. Now, young girls want to grow up to look like somebody who's had so much work done. That's actually not achievable naturally to look like that. So cosmetic surgery is the only option. And I do greatly worry about the pressures on young people, both men and women. And I think it's one of the reasons that levels of mental health issues and depression is at an all time high in young people. They're being asked to commit to a standard of beauty that is simply unachievable without thousands and thousands of pounds. I mean, there, you, occasionally you'll find somebody that's born naturally gorgeous. And we all know the supermodels back in the day, I'm never going to be Claudia Schiffer or or Cindy Crawford. But again, Claudia Schiffer and Cindy Crawford were natural. They weren't surgically enhanced. So yeah, it it's very, very, very worrying. And I'm hoping that things will swim back round again, and we'll get much more of an appreciation of non-surgically enhanced faces and bodies and and accept the fact that lots of different nose shapes and lip shapes and breast shapes and hip shapes can be beautiful and I'm hoping that the cool girls will stop doing it so I'm hoping that the 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 sort of the equivalent of something like euphoria or stranger things where you've got all these young people that look different and are different sizes and shapes, and it equally being celebrated. I'm hoping that, hopefully, one day that that will be seen as the cool thing to do, and it's seen as being slightly naft to have all of this work done. I think I actually do think it's beginning to happen.
1: Because actually, what we haven't um, touched upon, and only because it hasn't really come up in the questions, is you know, if if somebody was to say to me, "I'm I can't recommend products," you know, you you you're the person that can do that. But if somebody to say to me, "You're, you're top," you know, doing. Exercise and eating well. I know I look better, you know, and I don't just yes. mean from the neck and down. And feel better. It's yeah, it's and so because you feel better and because you feel good about yourself, already a kind of setting off and letting off a kind of sense of of happiness and well being that I think is attractive to people, isn't it? You can see that in people that you know yourself are, are healthy and well. There's a there's something that kind of draws you in there. So starting from that very core foundation of you know what you put inside your body. I think is is really one of the most important tenets of, of beauty.
2: It's like I was saying when I was diagnosed with the female pattern hair loss, I genuinely thought I had a fairly healthy diet. And I have been a health and beauty journalist. And That means I have written about nutrition for the better part of 30 years. And I was surprised to see that that, that it wasn't as good as I thought it was, and I could do a deep dive and I could do better. Now, I'm a, I mean, I've seen your workout videos, they're amazing, but I'm a huge fan of Reformer Pilates, and for me, it was life changing. And I only really got into I'm it in the when church. I was, a, yeah, I was only really got into it, into it when I was about 35, 36, and I was sitting at my desk all day writing health and beauty features and going to an osteopath, and he said to me, You know, you either keep coming back to me every six months and fix your back, or you create a strong core, like go and do some, pil- choose yoga or Pilates, yoga or Pilates, it's the perfect thing. And I found this dynamic reformer Pilates and just thought, absolutely. And now I've got to an age, and this is what I would say to anybody younger, where actually, for me, it's not so much about looking a certain way, it's feeling a certain way. And also that embracing of yourself as being more than just your shell, your outer shell, which as you get older, I mean, obviously you come to terms with the fact that you're more than just what you look like. And it worries me when I look at all those young girls having breast implants and Brazilian butt lifts and stuff like this and I'm just thinking when you'll get older and and some of your girlfriends will get breast cancer or or some of them will fall ill or they'll get arthritis or whatever and then suddenly you'll think actually your body isn't really there to be consumed by other people it's it's there to give you a long healthy happy life fingers crossed, if you're lucky. So that's the wisdom that comes with age though, Gabby.
1: You're absolutely right. And also there is a lovely, I don't know, I can't pinpoint the day or the moment, but you know, when you stop (laughs) going, like when I was 18 I'd look at Vogue and go, I wish my thighs didn't meet. And I wish my, um, you know, nose looked like Christy Turlington's. And I wish I had, you know, and there is a moment in midlife where you can't even believe you thought that because you appreciate your health so much that, I don't care. I've got a big nose. You know, I don't. (laughs) I'm just. I'm so happy. I can go for a run.
2: (laughs) I was thinking of saying to you earlier on that if we looked the way we looked now, and in in these days, and we were sort of 18 or 19, I know that I grew up. I did gymnastics like you never to a decent standard, but I did school gymnastics, so I had that archetypical sort sort of slightly chunky thigh thing. And I remember thinking. Oh my God, like, why are my thighs bigger than anybody else's? I mean, my waist was also smaller, but why are my thighs larger? There were no other options in those days. So nowadays, would I I be having liposuction? Would you have a rhinoplasty? Would I be having lip filler because my lips don't look like everybody on Instagram? And I think actually, if you make that pathway seem normal and acceptable, then I think it's a slippery slope for a whole generation of people. That I hope they grow out of. I mean, you know, you you have a daughter, so you're much yeah. more plugged into what that generation think.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's. I mean, at the moment, I'm. You know, she's got a very healthy attitude towards food and exercise. Well, she's got life. that from her mum and dad, and, though. And yeah, and I and that's what I'm really grateful that she's. You know, that she sees beyond that those kinds of slightly artificial images, if you like. And I think though, it what's a shame is you know, and you, what you point to there. Would we have done things differently if it was available? When I couldn't kind of live up to those standards that I was flicking through Vogue. In my, I went, well, if I'm going to be successful enough, I'm going to have to do it this way. And I'm going to. I'm going to go to university and I'm going to do this. I'm to, so I kind of like I, I thought. Well, I'm not going to be making my fortune on the cover of Vogue, you know. So, so I'm going to go off and do something else in life that you know that I feel I can achieve uh, outside of my looks. That doesn't mean that I was you know kind of decrying their looks and thinking they look great. But I think it, it motivates you in other ways. You think, well, what can I do? And what what my worry is that young people look at those images and they don't think, what can I do? They think, how can I look like that? And is that going to give me happiness?
2: I agree completely. I remember, I mean, I'm incredibly tall and flat-chested, so I wasn't the most popular girl at school in the classes and at the school discos. But I remember it It forced me to think, right, OK, what else have I got going my, for myself? And it, and it forced me to be this sort of slightly chatty, funny person, self-effacing person. And actually, I ended up making a living writing and that speaking person. and talking and being that person. It's the same with you. If you think about your career, it's actually forced... And and I I sometimes look at, I've worked with very beautiful models and I sometimes do look at them and they are truly works of nature and and art. And you look at me, you think you're absolutely wonderful, but how are you going to develop beyond this because nobody is judging you for anything else other than your surface and, and the I lucky
1: think... ones realize it don't they and they and yes, they go they off do. and um, but if we just develop you know, other things and it's it's partly our fault society that kind of we revere you know kind of people just for the what's on the outside and make such a huge thing of it and i think um you know and this has been a lovely interesting chat at the end of all of your advice but what i think is important in midlife is that most of these people i think who've asked for your advice today they kind of get that when you get to midlife you know and that's a lovely thing isn't it that you have that you have a certain comfort in your own skin.
2: Yeah, I think the two things that happen as you get older is you become much more comfortable in your own skin. I hope that everybody would become by the point, by the time they're in their midpoint, they are comfortable in their skin because aging is inevitable and we all know it's such a cliche, but it is it is such a privilege to age if we've all lost people when they were younger. But I also think the important thing you realize as you get older is when you're younger you're obsessed and you think you think everybody's looking at you and everybody's pinpointing everything that's wrong with you but actually they're too busy pinpointing their own problems. So you self-obsess that everybody's looking at you when you're younger and when you're older, you realise that nobody was looking at you in the first place. You should you have just relaxed that and time. had
1: fun. <laughs> I know, I know. Worrying about it instead of just being the best version of you and, and the happiest. That's the most important thing, isn't it? The happiest version of you. So uh, thank you for your wisdom, both the absolute kind of fantastic takeaway advice you've given to people. And I'm sure all of those people who have asked questions will be grateful to that, but also your life wisdom, Nadine which I think shines through in your own beauty. So I'm uh, a big fan of everything you do. Keep doing what you do because I think it's it's great that you're so independent in terms of the advice that you give as well. Thank you.
2: My pleasure.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This message comes from BOF sponsor
2: eBay. You'll know real when you get it